Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the world. This week, trial by jury. Today we'll hear from Kate Morgan, the victorious senior counsel for country care in Australia's first ever criminal cartel case to go before a jury. The nature of our statute in relation to cartels is such that in front of a jury, and it has to be a jury because it's a Commonwealth crime, trying to explain the complexity of our competition law and how that's developed through the statute, I think is fundamentally unfair on anyone, in particular on the jury, but also on any defendant, especially an individual defendant. That's Kate Morgan not holding back and more from her shortly. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. Well, the ACCC has published the final report in its Digital Advertising Services Inquiry, which is one of the inquiries it recommended for itself in the Digital Platforms Inquiry. This is inquiries spawning inquiries, isn't it? But this one's about ad tech, which is essentially what decides the display ads that you'll see on a website or an app. That's right. Every time you go to a page with ad space for sale, there's a whole process behind the scenes to find the ad that an advertiser will pay the most to serve to you. And that can depend on the kind of page you're visiting and also any information that's known about you, like roughly where you are, what kind of device you're using, and even what you've been up to lately on the internet. So if I've just bought a new Australia jersey, then I'm going to see ads for the upcoming Matildas matches, right? Yeah, they know you're good for a truckload of tickets, right? How do they know that? Well, like the ACCC says, ad tech has benefits for advertisers, publishers and consumers, but it is concerned about competition. With Google taking up a lot of space at every level of this complex supply chain, which can lead to conflicts of interest and potentially higher prices for these ad services. And this is where they've asked for new powers, right? Yeah, they want new powers to develop sector-specific rules to deal with the issues they've identified. And they've also flagged that they might recommend additional rules for digital platforms more broadly, which is part of a a move towards more forward-looking ex-ante regulation in areas where they think they need it. Right. And that's going to be the focus of the fifth instalment of the Digital Platform Services Inquiry early next year. That thing has got more instalments than the Fast and the Furious franchise, hasn't it? It will do, uh, unless they hurry up with Fast and Furious 10, which I'm hoping is going to be called Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Oh dear. Please ignore that joke and check out the Gilbert and Tobin update on the AdTech Inquiry. There's a link to that in the show notes. And there's also a link to a great essay by film writer Priscilla Page about how the often misunderstood Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is really oh, the heart stop. of the whole series. Stop. We need some sector-specific rules about what's allowed in the show notes. I'm just hoping they're ex-ante rules. Speaking of things that are supposed to be fast but make people furious, the New South Wales government has agreed to sell its remaining stake in Westconnex, which is the new toll road that links the northwest and southwest of Sydney. Well, it will when it's finished. You can probably hear the construction from my place. Yeah, mine too. You can hear it in stereo. But tell us about the issue, apart from the noise. Well, it's being sold to Transurban, which owns a lot of the other toll roads around Sydney. It already has half of Westconnex, which the ACCC let it by a few years ago. But with this further sale, ACCC Chair Rod Sims has criticised the government for trying to make a quick buck instead of driving competition between the toll roads. Well, it's a funny thing to think about roads being in competition, though, If I've got tickets to a match at the Olympic Stadium, right, I'm not going to go to the SCG just because the tolls are cheaper. No, you're not. And the ACCC agrees with you there. It's found that there wasn't much road-on-road competition. This was more about competition for the right to build new toll roads. But extra competition there would tend to push up the bidding price, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, it could, or it could mean better quality bids, which could lead to better roads um, and lower tolls, or maybe all of those things. So the NCCC is saying that the government is being short-sighted here and not thinking about what's best for the long term. Well, that's a common criticism of privatisations, isn't it? And the New South Wales government has come in for a share of it recently. It sure has. The ACCC has also taken action against the government's sale of the cargo ports around Sydney in a case that it lost and then appealed earlier this year. And in a later episode, we'll be hearing from our colleague, Sarah Lynch, who worked on that case. That'll be a treat. Now, we talk a lot about barbecues on this podcast. We do, don't we? And the government might be about to tell us what we can put on those barbecues, Matt. Yeah, or at least what we can call those things. There's a Senate committee inquiry on at the moment, and it's worried that consumers might be confused and the meat industry might be suffering because of all these new plant-based meat alternatives, which sometimes use language and imagery that could suggest that they're meatier than they really are. You mean like facon or tofurkey? Yeah, exactly. And that used to be about as close as you could get because of the strict requirements in the food standards about what you can call things. You couldn't call it a sausage, for example, unless it was 50% meat. Hmm. But now there's a carve out that says you have to look at the whole context so you can use adjectives to make it clear it's not really that thing. So soy milk, peanut butter, ginger beer, they're all okay. What about jelly babies? I don't think jelly babies are ever okay. (laughs) And some of the meat producers think this has all gone too far. And if they have their way, we might not be able to bring our not dogs or our veggie burgers to Rod Sims's barbecue after all. We'll have to take our cylindrical protein sticks and our intra-bredular grillable discs instead. Oh dear. Well, so long as there's plenty of the old dead horse. No, no, we can't call it that anymore. (laughs) Anyway, the ACCC told the committee that they'd had a few inquiries about the way that meat and dairy alternatives were described, but there'd been no suggestion that anyone had actually been misled. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I was raised on nut meat and I never thought there was actual meat. But I suppose if there is a market for hot things that go between slices of bread, uh, it's more of a competition issue than a consumer issue. Yeah, and some of the submissions are saying that the inquiry is really about protectionism and the concern would be that uh, the market is developing in just the way that you've said. Well, it's certainly promoted as a more eco-friendly and healthier alternative. But I don't know, does being a non-carnivore actually make you live longer or does it just feel like it? (laughs) Well, talking about carnage, Maya, um, you recently spoke to senior counsel Kate Morgan, who acted for the accused in the country care case, uh, which was the first criminal cartel case to go before a jury in Australia. Indeed, that's right. We went courtside, as it were, for our first sideline scoop. Why don't we take a listen? Kate, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Tell us a little bit first about your background and how you came to be the guru of criminal cartels. Well, I love that name, guru of criminal cartels. I think there'd be lots of people who would disagree with that. But I originally was a commercial litigator and practiced in New York and then at Mallison's and wanted to go to the bar and was encouraged by others at the bar to possibly go to the Commonwealth DPP to get trial experience and to learn how to prove a case which you learn as a prosecutor. So the obvious place to go was the Commonwealth DPP because my background was commercial and they did white-collar crime, which is what I was interested in. So I went there for a few years and then went from there to the bar. Before we get on to the, the country care case, just give us a little backgrounder on criminal cartels because these weren't always a thing. They became legislated at a certain point. And you've got some views about that you've expressed over a number of years about uh, the usefulness of, of that legislation. Give us the thumbnail explainer, if you would. 
Well, I think the American experience has been such a positive one where they have prosecuted successfully and understandably other jurisdictions want to participate in that successful prosecution and to ensure that throughout the world, everyone, well, all different countries are prosecuting and protecting consumers in the same way. So this was seen as a necessary step, I think, by Australia and New Zealand has gone down the same route just recently. But the nature of our statute in relation to cartels is such that in front of a jury, and it has to be a jury because it's a Commonwealth crime, trying to explain the complexity of our competition law and how that's developed through the statute, I think is fundamentally unfair on anyone, in particular on the jury, but also on any defendant, especially an individual defendant. So to set the background of this case, it's about the supply of rehab and home care equipment like wheelchairs and walkers and shower chairs, which was being provided to patients by various suppliers who had contracts with the Department of Veterans Affairs or the DVA. But then the DVA decided they wanted one large supply contract, so they put it out to tender. And Rob Hogan of Country Care coordinated these various small suppliers so that they could aggregate their products into a bundle and bid for that contract. And it was that conduct which gave rise to this case, correct? The HCC characterised it as Mr Hogan attempting a price fix. He had slides that he presented, he had conversations he had with people, he had statements to people that were members, and then ultimately there was a clause in a draft contract. And altogether, the HCC said that was an attempt by Mr Hogan and Country Care to have the members fix the prices that they sold rehab equipment to the general public. So that's a little about the industry they were working in. What was the ACCC's theory of the case as to how all of that amounted to a price fix? So the the primary charge was the price fixing charge. And the way that worked was in 2014 at one of the conferences that Mr. Hogan would host for his various members to help them improve their businesses, where he would fly them in from around the country. They would have internal and external experts speaking to them about their business and how to operate within the DVA tender process and the DVA contract, I should say, and any other contracts that the country care had managed to acquire. As part of the introduction to the day, Mr. Hogan went through all the statistics, how well they were going, and then he said to them, so it was 2014, he put a slide up, a couple of slides, he put up 27 slides, but the crucial two slides, the second of those two crucial slides said, don't advertise online at prices lower than the contract price. And the previous slide talked about margins and the fact that the DVA and other government organisations and procurement departments looked at prices online. So he was telling his members, if you advertise into financial year sales or Christmas deals at lower prices, the DVA sees it. Two years later in negotiations, they're going to say to me, I want that lower price. And then I have to give you a lower price, members, and then your margins are affected. And so here's some advice for you. This is the defense case. Here's some advice for you. Take it on as you like, but I'm trying to tell you how it will affect your business. So what the HCC said about that, and he repeated it allegedly at another national conference and on one-on-one conversations or at state meetings he'd have every quarter with the different members. And then in a contract, there was a clause in a draft contract which said the same thing. So all of that was relied on. So it was conduct that went over 
12 months. It was relied on by the ACCC to say that Mr Hogan, through Country Care, was attempting to induce all the members to reach an arrangement or understanding between themselves and with Country Care to price fix in the sense that the prices they would advertise would be at a certain level. Those advertised prices were prices to the general public. And what the general public meant ultimately was non-DVA sales. So the HBC accepted that there was a contracted price with the DVA and prices advertised had nothing to do with the DVA or any other government department, but that if you're advertising on your website, that that would be prices that might affect the price to the general public. And they said that was an attempt to induce a price fix. And then the other two charges were much more straightforward bid rigging charges where there was just one witness involved. One was a New South Wales contract with the Department of Health for similar items that were in the DVA, so largely mobility aids. The second contract was in relation to beds for public hospitals. So they were much more straightforward charges, but as important, of course, to my client. So price fixing was the main focus of your 12-week holiday in Melbourne? (laughs) Yes, it was (laughs) for my COVID experience. Yes, the price fix had all the witnesses the two witnesses for the bid rigging, one of the witnesses for the second bid rig, the first bid rigging charge was in fact the immunity witness with the secret recording for the price fix. You mentioned a jury trial. So, you know, most competition lawyers haven't had much to do with juries and they're not used to writing documents for jury consumption. And I guess competition law barristers generally aren't, they address judges or they make submission, written submissions to judges who have a very different level of education and background to a jury. So I'd just like to explore the differences in a jury trial and what that meant for you, the selection of the jury, how you address the jury, how you observe them and then respond to them. Of course, the in a criminal trial, the you need unanimity. In a Commonwealth trial, there's not even a majority verdict possible. So you need unanimity of 12 or possibly down to 10 jurors if you lose a few along the way. And of course, the standard of proof is different as well. You have to, the prosecution has to demonstrate it beyond reasonable doubt, not on the balance of probabilities. And you've got to get 10, 11, 12 nil with those jurors in the room. So that changes a lot of dynamics. Tell us tell us a bit about dealing <laughs> with the jury. I just got shivers as you went through all those things, because I then thought about 10 other things also to talk about with the jury. But the very best thing to start it off is to talk about how we selected a jury, which has never happened before in the federal court. And I've done many in the district court where you have the jury panel sitting behind you in the courtroom. The prosecutor lists the basic charges, the names of the witnesses, and anyone who's got a problem puts up their hand. So in this case, because of COVID, we had all the panel. So it was the first they'd done it through the electoral roll and people had said whether they were prepared to be in a jury trial that might go for longer than four or six weeks. They all turned up are in one courtroom. We had them on screen in our enormous courtroom with the new jury box and we had our solicitors in the room with them looking at them. I don't know what they were looking for, but they were looking at them, sending us messages about what they could see. And then numbers were pulled out of a hat. The potential juror would leave one courtroom in Melbourne, walk the length of the building, walk into our courtroom, do an L-shape walk so we could watch them. They stood in front of the accused and their barristers and their senior counsel. And I had in-house counsel sitting next to me. And then they had to sanitize 
put a new mask on, take a mask off, put a new mask on, sanitize their hands so we could see their face. So you have four minutes to look at this person. What are you looking for? Who knows? You know, what they're wearing, whether they look interested, whether they look concerned, whether they look worried. And then you have to say challenge before they sit down. So what was really great about how we ran this case is that we had three accused and we were able to adopt three different ways of talking to the jury. So I was for the corporate accused. And so I ran the very clean, I'm the answer to the prosecutor. So I prosecute. So I know how that works. I know how to hold myself. I know how to speak to the jury in terms of being a real person and trying to use simple language. And so the way I approached it was to engage with what the prosecutor was doing and to have an answer to everything that they said. So that was always my strategy. And that was my job. I was Hermione Granger. I was the girly SWAT. I always was like, yes, your honor. Yes, your honor. No problem. We can do that. This is what we'll do. Yes, we can do that. That was our team. We were fluid. We were very, very focused on always looking the most professional, always having the right documents, having a beautiful folder. My solicitor was incredible and my junior was amazing. And the three of us were just like this, everything you would think of as a corporate client, you know, corporate accused, very smooth, nothing bothered us. That's how, well, that's what it looked like to the jury. But obviously when it was just the judge, it was a bit more aggro. Whereas the second accused was represented by Dean Jordan, very, very experienced criminal lawyer who's got a lot more expertise now in competition law, but has always done a lot of work in Commonwealth matters. So really understands how to run complex frauds, any kind of complex case. But he was for Rob Hogan. So he was able to approach it on the personal level. So this is Rob Hogan's story. Left school at 14, was a boilermaker, has created this business, has brought all these small businesses along for the ride. What are we doing here? We're here because the ACCC got it fixed in their head that this was what happened. And they actually got it wrong way back then. And unfortunately, here we are. But you, jury, has to decide that that's actually, they got it wrong. It wasn't malicious, but they got it wrong. And the third accused was the employee. And they were able to say, Mr. Harrison sent some emails with some contracts attached to it. And here he is. Five years later, David Staley, again, very experienced prosecutor, and he was able to connect with the jury because he knows how to talk to a jury. So all three of us adopted quite a different strategy. And I think as a group, as a cohesive whole, we appealed to the jury. And I think different parts of what each of us were saying appealed to different jury members. And I felt that I could see certain members of the jury nodding at me furiously, writing a lot of notes for me, but yet not some others, whereas they would have been writing notes when Dean was talking, for example. Fascinating. So it sounds like your two barrister colleagues were drawing out more of the human story. Totally. And you were running a more clinical, buttoned-down, professionalised case that it's an interesting gender split there too, if I might say. You've the got reverse. the men running running the emotional, <laughs> exactly. being all emotional, and there you were being all clinical and buttoned down. <laughs> And of course, you need a unanimous verdict with a jury trial. How does that affect things? And this is one of the reasons why it's so unfair, because in a complex case like this, that would not have been an unrealistic outcome for us, definitely, because under the constitution, one needs unanimity. It can be 10. The High Court has said, we're not going to think about less than 10, but we accept that 10 is okay. 
And that's why we start with 14. And that was for a case that was only originally meant to go for four to six weeks and then eight weeks and then 12 weeks. So people's lives intervened. And that's why we lost three jurors. But the idea that all of them had to agree on every single element of the charge is how I approached it. So perhaps looking back, your most important argument was simply that unless you are convinced, unless each of you are convinced beyond reasonable doubt of all of these things, then we can all leave, we can all go home. And simply the enormity and the complexity of the task is enough to get an acquittal perhaps in those circumstances. Well, that was certainly my approach. So Dean Jordan's approach was more personal and also he made a funny joke, which was along the lines of when Ms. Morgan was talking about X, Y and Z, I did not understand what she was saying. And if you didn't understand, that's not your fault. But if you didn't understand, you can't convict. Well, listeners, I hope you're understanding what Ms. Morgan is saying. I'm just tagging along. I'm just keeping up. But I will need a bit more help from her because the next question is, we'll get into the evidence and the arguments a little bit. How did the ACCC go about trying to prove their case? Well, it was a mixture of documents and witnesses and the famous secret recording. I want to hear about that. (laughs) So the witness that everyone wants to hear about is Mr. Andy Cudahy, who was a member of Country Care. And what that meant was he supplied services under the DVA or any other contract by providing goods that were sought by DVA veterans under the particular process that the DVA used. And he was a very enthusiastic participant, attempted participant in this industry, but felt that his own, for whatever reasons, he felt that he wasn't getting a good deal with Rob Hogan. And so he decided to record a conversation with Rob Hogan. And it's an exception to the provisions for not recording private conversations if you're doing it to protect your legitimate business interests. So he post facto said that he was trying to protect his legitimate business interests. Anyway, he recorded it. He basically talked a lot of stuff, got Rob Hogan to say things, to agree, which sounded like he was agreeing with things in a transcript, et cetera, et cetera. And that was played to the jury. And then Andy, Mr. Cutter, he was cross-examined for close to a week, primarily by Dean Jordan, about these so-called legitimate business interests. And it was put to him that he was lying and hadn't told the HCC the full truth. And It's all a matter of perception as to how sitting in a courtroom you think a witness has gone. Certainly my perception was the jury didn't like him very much. They didn't like the idea that someone was secretly recording a private conversation. Look, that's just the vibe. But the ACCC and the Commonwealth CPP, I should say, stood by Mr Cudahy. They relied on him. They went to the jury relying on his evidence. And I think Mr. Sims has continued to support the immunity witness who was Mr. Cudahy in press briefings since then. So, it, you know, it, that's an interesting endpoint in, for an immunity witness in this context. I'm very glad you've mentioned the vibe of the thing, though, because I now really feel like we could be in the castle. And I'm talking to a real barrister about real law. So thank you for that. The, the vibe and the castle did get a few mentions. They did. Through our case. Oh, well. Yes. <laughs> Not in front of the jury, but certainly because um, there was a sense of that. 
various the witnesses. This is what was incredible. The majority of the prosecution witnesses were fans of Rob Hogan. He had built their businesses up with them. He had brought them along for the ride. He represented to them family values, small business values. He encouraged them. He supported them. He provided them with business opportunities. And so you cross-examined those witnesses. It must have been unusual cross-examining a witness who's actually a fan of one of the defendants. That's one way of describing it. It, it How was, would you describe it? No, unusual. It was surreal. It was surreal to be giving a witness a, a document and saying, well, that's what this document is. And the reason that document says that is because you were collectively working as a group for the joint activity. Yes, was the answer. Obviously, you did it in a way that the jury understood, but you had to bring it all together at the end. But the best example, and I wish I'd brought the transcript with me, was Dean Jordan cross-examining a man called Peter Kelsch, where he asked, and what kind of man would you say Rob Hogan is? And Mr. Kelsch was, you know, in his early 60s, um, had been a very careful witness. And so he was asked, well, what do you think of Rob Hogan? And his breath caught in his throat like he had he was going to cry and he stopped himself and then he said something along the lines of, I would want a man like Rob Hogan in the trenches next to me. I would trust Rob Hogan with my life. Australia needs more people like Rob Hogan. That's fascinating. So did you call any witnesses? No. You did it all on documentary evidence and cross-examination? Yeah. So the defendants, uh, the second and third accused, didn't go into the box at any point? No. We did have a great advantage, which was the famous conference in St Kilda in 2014 had been videoed. Bits of it had been videoed and we played that to the jury. So the jury got to see Rob Hogan talking to his members about the group and about what he was trying to do and all about advertising and how they were trying to compete. And look, obviously I'm biased, but from my perspective, they would have seen a country businessman who'd worked out a pretty great business and had, was bringing a whole lot of other small businesses along for the ride. So you got the best of both worlds, really. You got the managing director in front of the jury, but he wasn't exposed to cross-examination. Yeah, some say. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked for a transcript of it. The jury asked for a transcript of basically the second accused setting up a joint venture description. It was quite extraordinary. The joint venture being the defence that you raised, essentially, that whatever they did was in the nature of a JV and therefore not a criminal cartel. So I had a volume of documents which was often repetitive, but was the same idea that they worked together to service the obligations under the DVA and lots of other contracts. There were contracts in Queensland, in Victoria and New South Wales, uh, that they agreed on national advertising, that they co-branded, that they used catalogues. All the things that Country Care did with them, they did together as a joint venture because that would then mean if there was an arrangement or understanding with the provision, if it was for the purpose of the joint venture, then it didn't breach the cartel provisions. Thanks, Maya. That was a great interview. Well, thank you. And there's more. In fact, so much more that we're going to release a bonus episode next week. Maybe you could look into your crystal ball, Matt, and tell us what's in it. I'm predicting we'll hear Kate answer some of the big questions, like what happened when the verdicts came in? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for the ACCC's pipeline of investigations? Mm -hmm. And this side I'm not sure about, but what do jury trials have in common with playing Germany in the World Cup? That Very right? prescient. Okay. Very prescient. Good. 
Well, I like this bonus feature idea. It's like the deleted scenes on a DVD. Whatever that is. Remember, you can find links to relevant and barely relevant materials in our show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. And if you don't have any friends, it'll help you make some. So till next time, this was your Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.